Our second reading comes from the Gospel of John. In John's Gospel, Jesus performs seven signs that reveal to those to whom he is ministering and with whom he is ministering the glory of God. This here at the beginning of the second chapter is the first of those signs. Let us continue listening now for a word from God. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants at the wedding, Do whatever it is he tells you. Now nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants, the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then the master of the banquet called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you... You have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Friends, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today's sermon is titled Ordinary Grace. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we, your ordinary people, gather on this, an ordinary day, here in an ordinary place. And yet we pray to you, O God, to do something extraordinary. Through the work of your spirit to use the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts to bring glory. To reveal your kingdom for a world that yearns for it. Oh God, we pray that you will accomplish these things this day. For you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. John and Stella Chan arrive at Donut City every single day at 2 a.m. For 28 years, seven days a week, this couple who immigrated to the United States from Cambodia in 1980 
who 10 years later opened their very own donut store, Donut City in Seal Beach, California, for 28 years, every single day, seven days a week, they have followed the same exact routine. They come through that back door at 2 a.m., they fire up the ovens, they prep the glazer, they mix the flour, they pour the sugar, they knead the dough, they prepare the icing, They line the trays, they stock the shelves, they clean the trays, they put them back. They open their doors to customers every day at 4.30 in the morning and they close every afternoon at 3 o'clock for 28 years. Together, this couple has run what is to many in that community an institution. And they did it in tandem all that time until late last September, when Stella, at the age of 63, suffered an aneurysm. Suddenly she was hospitalized, unable to talk, to walk, to eat. She was there for several weeks until recovering to the point where they sent her to a rehabilitation hospital where even today she continues that long road to recovery John, meanwhile, has been left to maintain the shop on his own. And when you've done something together for 28 years, you you know the ropes. But when one person in that couple is gone, suddenly everything takes a little bit longer. Suddenly everything requires a little more effort, a little more time. And so in the weeks after Stella's hospitalization, John felt or found himself rather staying longer, being more tired at the end of the days, oftentimes leaving the shop with no time left to go across town and visit his wife in the hospital. Now, eventually, some regulars found out about what had happened. We don't have a donut shop here on the island, but donut shop regulars are a very special breed of people. (laughs) They found out what happened, and one woman went home and she wrote on social media a post about John and Stella and all that was going on, and she was hoping that some in her community would rally to come and support this couple in their time of need. And as often happens, or sometimes happens on social media, it went viral, so to speak. Suddenly, people began lining up early in the morning, every day, like 4.30, 5 a.m. early, people lining up outside Donut City with a single purpose in mind, to buy up all the donuts as fast as they could so that John could close his shop early and go spend time with his wife. People who don't even or can't even eat sugar were showing up in these lines and buying donuts by the dozen and just handing them out to strangers. Now it occurs to me that the people in those lines, they probably felt like what they were doing was a good deed. But what I'm willing to bet John and Stella were feeling 
is a word that we sometimes use in church and maybe not often enough out in the world. What I'm willing to bet John and Stella felt having that community come towards them in that way was grace. You see, that's the funny thing about grace. It often shows up in the most low-key, unsuspecting, ordinary places. Grace is just as likely to show up in a box of donuts as it is a jug of wine. Just as likely to show up outside a donut shop in Seal Beach, California, as it is at a wedding in this place that doesn't even deserve a dot on the map called Cana. You know, when we read this story about the wedding at Cana, our eye is naturally drawn to that miracle piece of it, the water into wine. But I worry sometimes that when we focus only on that part of the story, we miss an equally important but other aspect of it. The fact that this is a completely ordinary event. Isn't it amazing how we know nothing about this wedding? We have no idea why Jesus is there. We don't know if this is like a Kanye and Kim type wedding. A few of you got that. Or if this is just sort of the friend who you grew up down the street with kind of wedding. We have no idea who the couple is. We don't know who is on the guest list. We don't know why Jesus or his disciples or his mother are there. All we know is that it is a wedding that took place in a place called Cana. You know, when I read it, it's almost as if the lack of detail is there to make the point that this is an anywhere, anyone, anytime kind of event. It's as if the lack of detail is meant to focus our attention on the fact that this is the story of God showing up with ordinary people, doing ordinary things, And in the midst of it all, acting how God acts abundantly. Don't just fill the jugs, fill them to the brim. God acts abundantly in this ordinary event. I wonder then if this story of the first sign The first sign Jesus uses to reveal the glory of God, God's kingdom on earth and John's gospel, is really there to be a call to people of faith, both then and now, to pay more attention to the ordinary. There will be other miracles in John's gospel, much more public and grand miracles, right? Jesus will feed 4,000, and then he'll be like, I can do even better, and I'll feed 5,000. Jesus will raise his friend from the dead. I mean, these are sort of the miracles we think of when we think of Jesus. And some of them will happen in places where we expect God to show up, in the synagogues, in the temple, out in the public square. But before we get to any of those stories, we are given this one, this story about God in the everyday and in the everywhere. You know, one of the great privileges of being a pastor is that people like Annie and me, we get invited to show up in these events 
that are of incredible significance in your lives. Right? We get invited to come and marry you. That's crazy to me. Still. We get invited into that hospital room just hours after a baby is born. And then we get invited sometimes to come back and to baptize that baby. It's incredible. We get invited into these moments where you have to be hard-hearted. You have to be spiritually blind not to see God's grace at work. But the thing is, those are moments that only happen every once in a while. There's often these long stretches in between those big moments where it's just plain old ordinary us. It's helped me realize that really what may be the main role of a pastor is to point out for all of us those instances of ordinary grace. To point them out because the reality is it's so easy to miss. Y'all notice how in this story, Jesus does this amazing thing, right? Jesus turns water into wine, but hardly anyone notices, right? The bride and groom, they have no idea how it happened. The guests, they're sort of, I don't know, but I'm not complaining. I mean, we got 120 or something gallons of really good wine now. I think the modern day equivalent, have you all been to these weddings where couples have stopped having cake and they've started having donuts? For me, that's the equivalent of this. I don't know where it came from, but I'm not complaining. The chief steward, he thinks that someone's raided the cellar. No one even notices when this ordinary grace shows up at this ordinary wedding, except the servants. Only those men and women whose noses are down in all the details that have to happen for a wedding to take place, only they notice what happens. Ordinary grace. What if this story is an invitation, a call even, for us to pay more attention to God's activity in the ordinary. Because the reality is, ordinary grace, it is all around us, all the time. It's that stranger who you sit next to on the flight, and you don't mean to, but by the time you land and taxi to your gate, wherever you're going, you have just bore your soul to this human being. (laughs) And they turn to you at the end of the flight, And they say, I'm going to pray for you. And they don't mean it in the sort of like, thank God I'm done with this person kind of way. It's that genuine, you can sense it. I'm going to pray for you. Ordinary grace. It's that prodigal in the back pew who no one ever thought they would see in a sanctuary again. It's the first hint of a real smile on the face that has wept more tears than you or they could possibly count. That real smile, that one that wells up from some deep place within. And it's also the opposite. It's that first tear on the face of someone who has been masking their pain with a smile for so long. 
ordinary grace. It's that person in our midst who struggles to afford groceries at the end of the month, every month. They are in our midst. And yet when the Easter luncheon happens, they show up with this dish that to some might look meager, the kind of dish at a church luncheon that you put at the end of the buffet table. But to God, that dish may as well be the feast. Ordinary grace. It's the quiet presence of a child beside their parent. From that first hospitalization to that oncology waiting room to the ICU bed, all the way to hospice. Ordinary grace. That first flicker of hope for a couple that has suffered silently for years. It's that friend who doesn't ask what kind of help you need. They just show up at your door and they say, I'm here to help. Ordinary grace. It's that note that we all sometimes get that we didn't expect to arrive in our mailbox, but there it is, and it has these words of incredible kindness and grace. It moves us so much that we tuck it away in a file so that we can have something good to hold on to on those really bad days. Ordinary grace. It's a weekend like this one when we, we remember an ordinary pastor in an ordinary church called Ebenezer that got plucked up and dropped down in that long line of prophets to preach freedom and justice. Ordinary grace. There's a really great book. It's a novel by William Kruger. It's called Ordinary Grace. Maybe some of you have read it. The main character, the narrator of the book is a man named Frankie Drum, but he's writing most of the time through the eyes of when he was a little boy in the summer of 1961, growing up in a small town out on the edge of the prairie in the Midwest of our country. It was during that summer that this young boy, he discovers in the woods where he and his friends love to play and walk along the train tracks, they discover the body of an itinerant man, a homeless man. The boy's father, this character named Nathan Drum, is sort of the Atticus Finch of this book. He's the local Methodist pastor, and he arranges a funeral for this man that his young boy found. And when the day comes, Nathan and Frankie and the town mortician and sheriff and Nathan's friend from the war, a man who suffers, is haunted by the war, a character named Gus who lives in the basement of the church across the street from the manse. Together they all gather, this small group, around an empty grave on a hillside out on the outskirts of town looking across a river and out to the plains. And Frankie writes about that moment. He says, It seemed to me a good day to be dead. 
seemed to me a good day to be dead, and by that I mean that if the dead cared no more about the worries they'd shouldered in life and could lie back and enjoy the best of what God had created, it was a day that day for exactly such. The air was warm and still, and the grass of the cemetery which Gus kept watered and clipped was soft green and the river that reflected the sky was this long ribbon of blue silk, and I thought that when I died, this was the place exactly I would want to lie, and this was the scene that forever I would want to look out upon. And yet in that moment, he says, I thought that it was strange that a resting place so kingly had been given to a man who had nothing and about whom we knew so little that even his name was a mystery. I thought it was strange that a resting place so kingly had been given to a man whose name was a mystery. And though I didn't know at all, he says, and still do not know the truth of the arrangement, I suspected that it was somehow my father's doing. My father and his great Embracing heart. Ordinary grace. That's what this wedding is. And though, like Frankie Drum, I cannot explain to you how or why God shows up in such small and ordinary ways, in a box of donuts and at the edge of a grave of a man who no one knows, I cannot explain to you how or why God shows up in those circumstances any more than I can explain how or why God changes water into wine. I do not know at all, frankly, and I still do not know the truth of that arrangement. But friends, friends, I have a suspicion that it is somehow our Father It is somehow our God's doing. Our God and his great embracing heart. Friends, may that heart beat in your chest this day. That you too might go out to embrace the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.